The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. All right, question to start us off is, who would you say that you talk to the most? Who would you say you talk to the most? Last week, Trevor uh, had us shout out our favorite season. I think that was what he had us shout out. So right now, on the count of three, I want you to shout out who you think you talk to the most, whoever it is. All right? One, two, three. Heard a lot of different things. We probably heard spouse, parent, child, different things like that. Ben was stealing my thunder. That I think the person who we talk to the most is ourselves, is myself. And maybe some of you said that around the room. Maybe some of you are having external, out loud conversations with yourselves the most of any external conversation that you have. But I would, I would argue that internally, we are just having a conversation with ourselves all the day long. As you drive, as you're falling asleep, when you wake up, when you're in a test, and it's like, how am I going to remember this? I remember the page it was on. I can't find the answer. It's somewhere in this brain space. Now imagine if, if we were able to, we, we, I think I have a picture on the screen. If you, we were on the screen, we were able to show every idea that you had, every conversation that you would have with yourself. There's all of these bubbles that are coming off of you. If we could see all of that, if we had this digital recorder that would show, you know, for a whole day, for seven days, all of the conversation that you were having with yourself, that would probably, one, be very scary, two, would show you're a sinner, and three, would show that you talk to yourself a lot. But I'm interested to think about, in this conversation with ourselves, how much of it is about you? How much of it is about me? For myself, it's just easier It feels more natural, I don't know, to just think about me and what is best for me. Maybe I give a little bit of brain space to to family, uh, to maybe some friends, to maybe some other people I'm around, but a lot of the space is just spent thinking about me. Now in Ecclesiastes 4, I want to ask, is that bad? Is that bad for me to think about me? Who are we supposed to think about? Who are we supposed to talk to ourselves about? And what is ultimately best for us in that realm? Let's read verses 1 through 6. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So verses 1 through 3, one thing to note is in the original manuscripts of the Bible, verses and chapters were not in there. 
So many times the verses at the beginning of a chapter, they're coming right out of the previous chapter. Last week, Trevor mentioned verses 16 and 17 in chapter 3 that in many ways we just feel out of place. In the place of justice, there's wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. There's evil. And ultimately, God is going to be the judge of the righteous and the wicked. And so the preacher is confronted with just outrageous violence everywhere under the sun. Anywhere you look, there's violence, there's evil. And tears are shed and there is no one to comfort the oppressed. And so the preacher does this unique move of congratulating the dead. He congratulates the dead who are spared the misery of continuing to to witness this life. And then he goes one step further and he says the happiest state, the happiest state you could have been in is just never to existed. Now this is not a statement about the sanctity of human life. He's not saying that not existing is better than existing or being dead is better than alive. That would contradict so much of the rest of scripture. But he's using rhetoric to make a point. And he's actually making a high claim to life. Life should be better than this. Life should be better than what we're seeing, what we feel. Things feel out of place. And in reality, the world that you and I exist in, it is filled with difficulty and pain and toil and hardship. Think about some out there will will preach a prosperity gospel. That you can speak goodness over your life. You can... You can name it and you can claim it. You can manifest certain things in your life if you just think the right way, believe the right things, say the right things, and have enough faith. It's almost like they're trying to manifest certain things and regain control over their lives. But but the preacher would argue "This this is not possible. Things are out of place. Pain, toil, hardship, oppression, wickedness, it is there and it exists. Now, another question for you is why do you do the things that you do? What motivates you? Why did you get out of bed this morning? Why are you here right now? Why are you going to go to work tomorrow? Why are you going to change another diaper? Why do you do that? Now, verse 4 is an interesting kind of uh, a picture of how our toil and our desire for skill is oftentimes to be better than our neighbor. Our motivation is to be better than our neighbor, which then obviously leads to verses one through three. It leads to oppression and pushing others down for the sake of bettering myself. Envy drives us to gain. Is this not true? Is this not true of you? I think about a, a kid, uh, kids playing with toys. And it's like the toy could be the most unpopular. No kid wants to play with it. And then one kid goes and grabs it. And then all of a sudden, every kid wants that toy. And it's the lamest toy in the whole room. But because one kid went and grabbed it, it's like, that kid has it. I I now want it for myself. I'm sure that's what's taking place in our twos and threes classroom right now. These kids are not uninterested with a toy. Some kid goes and grabs it. And then all of a sudden, everyone's interested in that toy. Envy drives us. We want what other people have, but at what price? 
The price is not honoring God. There's almost this competitiveness to outdo others. Proverbs uh, chapter 14 verse 30 says that uh, envy makes bones rot. And all of this is vapor. It's a striving after wind. It's trying to box the wind. It's vapor. It's vanity. There's this old saying, any friend can share your sorrows and failures, but it takes a true friend to share your joys and successes. So any friend can share your sorrows and your failures, but a true friend to share your joys and successes. I think about Romans uh, chapter 12 with this. There's gonna be, we're going to read some of it here in just a second. It's going to encourage us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But I want you to note all of the hard things that Romans, 12, Romans chapter 12 calls us to. Marie, verses 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So much of what this chapter that Paul is encouraging us to, none of it is really easy. It is so hard. And verse 15, weep with those who weep. That, that feels natural to us. That feels like we, we might be able to do that. I bet that you can weep with those who weep. But harder is to rejoice with those who rejoice, even if every fiber in your being wants what they have. Think about the success of a friend. When a friend has success, it's easy to kind of offer a half-hearted smile, a congratulations, but secretly we are envious and we want what they have. But then when a friend falls flat or they don't get what they want, I don't know about you, this is, this is for myself and my sin. When they don't get what they want, we can hug him, we can encourage him, but then secretly his failure, his missed opportunity makes us feel better about ourselves. Deep inside, we, we want the thing. We want to be the focus. We want whatever they have. Job, money, house, spouse, a car, a date, a title, a friendship, a baby, a degree, a promotion, a normal family, clothes, computer, a phone. It can be the things that are the most important to the most mundane. And envy drives us. The preacher is probing at our motivation. And our motivation for why we do the things that we do is me. Is ourselves. And this is vanity. It is striving after the wind. So the first way to not love our neighbor is envy. Verse 4. There's two other ways. Verse 5. Laziness is a way to not love our neighbor. Laziness is being unwilling to work and create. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is a beautiful picture of 
of uh, the responsibility that God has given his image bearers to care for this world. Laziness is a way to hate our neighbors because we're not caring for them, we're not willing to help them, and we have nothing to give. So the preacher uses hyperbole again, uses rhetoric in verse 5 to make a point. Instead of giving to others, the sluggard, the lazy one, gives himself to himself and he has no food. So eventually he has to eat himself. Now you've probably never seen a lazy person eat himself. This is rhetoric. This is used to make a point. Workaholics on their deathbed often are going to say that they wish they would have worked less and done more of what matters. But we can imagine that the lazy on their deathbed would almost say the same thing, but that they wish they would have worked more and done more of what matters. Both the workaholic and the lazy want to do more of what matters. And then verse 6, the third way to hate our neighbor is frantic busyness. We want better than striving, working to be better, more powerful, make more, have more. Better than all of those things is a handful of quietness, contentment, peace, rest. We can easily live thinking tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow I'll finally have time to read the Bible, to play with my kids, to organize the house, to make a friend, to finish the degree, to get married, to have a child, to get the promotion, to make more money to meet the deadline. Stop. Enjoy God's gift to you today. Life is but a vapor. Don't assume that if things were different, life would be better. This may be the last day you have. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. So let us enjoy today, not with frantic busyness. So is our life defined by diligence with rest? Or contentment? Or is it defined by envy and laziness or frantic busyness? Striving is anti-neighbor. Laziness is anti-neighbor. But diligence with rest, when we work and we Sabbath, we can both love God and love our neighbor. So verses 1 through 6, we saw the futility of living for me. Verses 1 through 6 shows us the futility of of living for me. Let's read the next six verses. Again, I saw, the vanity, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business." Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken." Now, verses 7 and 8 show us a picture of more vanity. Working tirelessly, but having no one. Having no one to share it with. Having no one around. The the phrase, all alone. This person has no second. That's literally what the the 
uh, verse translates as. One person who has no second. They're committed to self and to no other. Now this could be the business exec who's working 100 hours a week to make all the money they possibly can. They have no kids, no family, no friends, no community. Or if they do have that, it's pretty much like they don't have it because they're totally zoned in to one thing. This could also be the lazy person who's doing the most basic of things, but only caring for me. I maybe get a little bit of money, I make a little bit of money to have a little bit of food, but then I I play video games, I care about myself, I do whatever I want, and I don't care about anyone else. A question here is, what is going to satisfy you? What are you hoping for in this life? In his uh, sermon series on Ecclesiastes, uh, Matt Chandler, a a pastor in uh, Texas, talks about having kids, having no kid ever come and talk to him about his dad, his or her dad, having driving an old beat-up car or um, living in a small house or uh, the dad couldn't buy uh, the kid a pony or the dad couldn't pay for the ski trip or pay for some school activity. He's never had a kid come and complain to him about that. But he's had plenty of kids complain when parents are dads or moms or whoever are driving nice cars. They have plenty of money. They could send all the kids on the ski trips. But the kids are questioning and come and ask him, does my father love me? Does my mother love me? And they have a totally warped view of their value. What are your priorities Verses 9 through 12 shows our deep need for each other and for community. One falls, one is in trouble, the other will lift him up. But if we are alone, trouble will come. When I was growing up, I think it was probably elementary school, middle, and high school, I loved the summer. I think I've told you guys before, I watched a lot of TV, like an inappropriately too much amount of TV Hours and hours a day. But my, my favorite thing to watch was The Price is Right. 11 a.m., Channel 9 in Columbia, CBS. Uh, we were watching The Price is Right all the time during the summer. So they would, you know, obviously the show goes on. They have commercials throughout the show. Most people watching The Price is Right are probably, you know, I don't know, probably above the age of 75 or, you know, whatever. It's older people. Um, and so there's this you know, 1989 famous commercial that I'm sure came on during The Price is Right or there were um, spinoffs of it from Life Call, which I think became Life Alert. I'm sure you guys have, have heard this phrase before. The phrase is, I've fallen and I can't get up. I've fallen and I can't get up. And they don't have one of those nice little beepers. You know, they said they advertise, I watched the ad this week. They advertise it as this beautiful pendant that you would wear. And it's just this little like silver necklace with the pendant that you would press. If you had fallen and you couldn't get up, someone from Life Alert could come and help you. They would, you know, call the cops or call the ambulance and get somebody there. And then I watched this montage of so many movies, TV shows, cartoons, other commercials who have spun that off and have have the phrase in there, I've fallen and I can't get up. I was thinking about acting that out for you guys, but that's probably too much. So we'll just keep going. But we need each other in life. We need each other to keep each other up. I've fallen and I can't get up. You would be out of luck if you were isolated and alone. But if you have community around you, you have somebody to help you up. 
we often see what other people have and ask, what will it take to get that rather than simply rejoicing with them at what the Lord is doing in their lives? I think about uh, when I f- was first coming to Greer Station, I was going back. I'd already been listening to the, the it was the weekly podcast at that time. Now, we're, now we have a podcast, All of the Above, and was just enjoying listening to it and listened to Trevor and Adam do one on New Year's goals. And it was paradigm shifting for me because the challenge, which I, I think came from Adam, was how much of our New Year's goals, how many of our New Year's goals are focused on me? And what's best for me? I can get fitter. I can, you know, save more. I can make new friends. I can accomplish this goal. I can learn a new language. It's kind of me and I language. And it's been paradigm shifting since hearing them talk about it to, to make New Year's goals or make resolutions or just live life thinking about other people. How much of my life is centered on being for me? How much of your life is centered on being for you? Versus being out for the betterment of those around you. I think about Jesus' two great commandments to love God and to love others. Envy, laziness, frantic busyness, isolation, that is not the answer to loving God and loving your neighbor. Evil and sin lie within us. So, what is the answer? Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. We studied this a couple weeks ago uh, in a variety, a number of our different groups. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One, one pastor summarized this passage as saying, we need each other to help keep each other believing in Jesus. I need you, you need me, we need the people around us to help keep us believing in Jesus. Support and community is not quickly broken, much as a threefold cord. This is why we have a church restoration policy. Hopefully we are being restored regularly to each other Because we are all walking in sin day by day. And we want to see the encouragement and the exhortation of our brothers and sisters around us to pursue godliness, to have Christ's likeness. We want to have the encouragement and exhortation of each other. Your family, your church family, your investment in neighbors and coworkers and trying to share the gospel. All of that requires time and brain space. And it is so worth it. And so we need to invest in each other. So verses 7 through 12 shows us the beauty and really necessity of living for others. Going on in verses 13 through 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. 
So we have this poor and wise youth who becomes king. He becomes self-absorbed and a stubborn fool. And then another poor and wise youth is said to be better than this stubborn, self-absorbed king. And And this poor and wise youth is going to supplant the king. And the preacher tells us there's no end to all the people that is underneath the king's care. The king has continuous work and almost trouble before him to care for everything that comes before him. And in many ways, that would just be a totally thankless job. Just continually, all the time, have to care for people. The current and future subjects have minimum appreciation for what the king does. And so this king is forgotten and is likely, it's just like every other king. There's maybe a faint memory of the king. Maybe there's some words on a page written somewhere about him. But their lives are vapor. How much more so you and me? None of us in here, I don't think, are kings and and queens of you know, we're, we're, we're royalty. If you are, please come talk to me after. I would love to, to know that tidbit. Um, but self-exaltation is vapor. We want to invest in things that matter. Because our lives are here today and they're gone tomorrow. The whole passage, everything that we've read about, is calling you to get out of yourself Get out of your own brain and invest in what is eternal, namely other image bearers of God. Work for the good of your kids, for your spouse, for your community, for your clientele, whatever you do for for work. Serve them. Do not allow envy and a drive for more to push you to pointless toil. Invest fully and then die at the end of your days. Be weary of investing in futile things. In verses 13 through 16, we see the value of investing in eternity. The value of investing in eternity. Even the king's investment in his people. There's going to be no appreciation for it as soon as he's passed. So tonight, we, we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, kind of our overarching biblical principle, is that we need to invest eternally. Our lives are meant to be invested for eternity's sake. Invest eternally. Give your life for God and others, not yourself. Who are you living for? Jesus makes clear in the two great commandments, love God and love others. We are to love God and to love others. Fathers, your lives are to be poured out for your wife and your children, for the people you serve in your work. I think about another, there's another Matt Chandler clip from I think a sermon maybe 10 years ago or so. And he asked in it, why are men going to bed with so much energy? God designed you to be tired. Go to bed exhausted, wrung out for the kingdom of God. So fathers, husbands, invest your lives. Be wrung out for the kingdom of God. Go to bed at night totally wiped and totally exhausted. 
singles. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that he wishes all were like himself with the gift of singleness. Not because it's necessarily better, but because you're able to give undistracted attention to the Lord. There's not as much in this world vying for your attention. So how are you evangelizing, investing, discipling others? I so often tell younger guys and girls, I wish that I would have spent my single days reading the word so much more, memorizing more of God's word, evangelizing, sharing the gospel. Moms, your children, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, they are eternal beings. Invest your life like it depends on it. Because to have true life, to have the abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10, it does depend on your investment in eternal beings. You will not be remembered, most likely. And yet, you can invest in eternity. You and I have the opportunity to invest in eternity. Invest in the eternal beings all around you. Everything else is vapor. Now, your investment, it may not make a huge dent in the world, in the nation, in, the state, in our state, even in our city, and maybe even in our neighborhoods. But you can do good to your neighbor today and tomorrow by not being lazy, by not being envious, but by investing in eternity, by honoring God, by loving those around you. Everyone around you is an image bearer of God and everyone around you is an eternal being whether they're going to spend that eternity with Jesus worshiping him or separated from him Jesus gave his life for everyone else we worship a humble and poor man who became king Mark chapter 10 verse 45 tells us that Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life for you and for me. And therefore God has highly exalted him. Friend, if you have yet to turn from your sin, I encourage you to do that today. If you are living for yourself and for your own gain, that is not the way we were created. We were created to live for God and to live for our neighbor. And Jesus offers you new and abundant life. Jesus has given his very life for you. Jesus is eternal. God is eternal. And he is invested in eternity by giving his life for you and for me. And I pray that you would turn to him, that you would find hope and trust in him. I want to close us tonight by reading Isaiah chapter 55, verses one through three. This call to come to Jesus and the focus to not spend our money, to spend our time on things that don't satisfy, on things that are not um, eternal. We want to spend our, th- spend our lives focusing on, on that which is eternal. Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. I mean, that is the echo of Ecclesiastes. 
Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. We are being offered eternal life. We are eternal beings, and I pray that you would invest your life for the sake of eternity. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you humbly tonight, knowing that our sin, our wickedness is so great. My sin and my wickedness is so great. So often have been envious of others, wanting whatever they have, wanting even friends to to fail or to not get something just so I don't feel worse about myself. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be men and women who rejoice with those who rejoice, that we would invest our lives for the sake of the good of those around us. There's so much beauty in being members of this body, 161 members, 160 others to invest our lives in. Lord, I pray that we would want the good of our neighbor and that we would do anything and everything for it. And Father, I pray that you would convict us that ultimately the greatest eternal good for our neighbor is to spend it with you, to spend it worshiping King Jesus. And I pray that we would be eager to make disciples of our kids of our neighbors, of our coworkers, of strangers we meet at the coffee shop. Wherever we go, I pray that we would make you known, that we would preach Christ and him crucified. Lord, I pray tonight that, that we would see that our lives are but a vapor, and yet we have the opportunity to invest them eternally. Pray that you would get our conversations and our minds off of ourselves and onto our spouse, onto our children, onto our neighbors, onto our roommates, onto our coworkers, onto other members of this body, onto our community group uh, members. Lord, I pray that we would invest for the sake of others. Lord, we love you so much, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.